I'm Salma Qureshi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. Today is October 15th, 2020, and we're talking to Eliza Bliss Moreau, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and a Core Scientist at the California National Primate Research Center at UC Davis. Hi, Eliza. Hi. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, Eliza's research tackles comparative and translational affective science using multi-method, multi-species, and multi-level approaches to understand the social and affective states of primates, both human and non. Her work takes an evolutionary perspective on understanding emotion-related processes, and her lab is also developing a macaque model for studying human emotion-related disorders and diseases. Um, so today, piped in, we've got a group whose interests range from the epigenome uh, all the way to dynamics of complex systems and behavior. Uh, we've got Melanie Carles. Hi, Mel. Hi. And Charlie Wilson. Howdy. And Todd Troyer. Hi, Todd. Hello. So where to begin today? Um, I thought, so neuroscience seems so dominated by the precedence of sensory motor systems where we can define and constrain input, measure output, and then attempt to map the intervening process onto a neural architecture. And cognition is hard enough for most of us to resolve in that framework, but it seems that emotion, which in my mind is different from cognition, maybe you can help uh, tell me if that's even in the right way to think about it, but emotion um, contains an even more complex set of dimensions and that it not only drives individual behavior, but it seems to have all these symbolic components that are read out across individuals and can affect survival at the level of social groups. So to me, it seems like the clear starting point for any discussion today is in defining the ABCs of affective science. Um, it's not something we've talked a lot about here. Um, so how neuroscientists like you take centuries of, of philosophical and psychological and let, let's say literary terms <laughs> um, about emotion um, to build a taxonomy that can be incorporated into experimental and biological frameworks, where I think fundamentally uh, most of us are, are interested in process rather than states. Um, so it would be really useful if you could just first differentiate for us um, affect, emotion, uh, even mood, and tell us about some of the prevailing ideas of how these are, in, how they interconnect, and, and then also how evolution helps connect these categories to biology. Yeah, that, that's a great question, because I actually think, I mean, that question could go in many different directions, but the core of it is really about how we're defining the things that we're studying, and I think how we're ensuring that we're studying the same thing and the right thing across species, because of course, from an behavioral neuroscience perspective. I mean, there are many people doing neuroscience with humans, um, but those of us working in non-human animals and trying to build animal models of disease run into this issue all the time that it still remains the case that the best way to know what somebody is feeling or their emotion state, and perhaps you're dissociating emotion from consciousness, that's a whole other topic of conversation, uh, but is to ask them. So we have strong beliefs that emotions read out in the face and the body and the voice and Certainly, emotion science was dominated by a perspective that there were a small set of basic or fundamental emotions that had discrete neural circuitry or discrete behavioral patterns. Um, and so, you know, to understand an emotion state, you could kind of read them like a book. And that made, I think, work with non-human animals kind of alluringly simple. Um, and what we're finding and what I'll, I'll talk about today is that that's 
Well, first of all, in humans, it doesn't hold, right? So, you know, even facial behaviors, which we refer to colloquially as expressions, as this with this idea that they're a readout of an internal state, they don't map to emotions in a one-to-one way. And people use facial behaviors in contextually dependent ways to subserve social signals, to be social signals and subserve social needs. Um, and that is, that, that's been in the literature, but it hasn't been at the forefront of the literature. So, um, one of the things, you know, my, my goal in coming, I was trained as a social psychologist and I didn't start working with animals until my postdoc. Um, and my goal for going from social psychology with humans to non-human primate neuroscience was to understand the sort of mechanisms that you're talking about um, and the process rather than state. And I had high hopes because I had read the literature uh, that this would be, you know, you just like show up and learn how a monkey works or learn how a rat works and then be able to like do these studies about states that translate. And I, I learned the hard way uh, that my, many of my assumptions were false when I started sitting with monkeys as monkeys rather than taking my concepts of how the world is structured and trying to apply it to them. And so that's brought me and my group to this whole other perspective about how we approach these questions and actually how we define features and being really clear about what we're talking about and how we know that it has translational value. Because I think ultimately those of us working in the space, like that's what many of us are working on. Um, so, so it's a great question. So my, my take on this is that everybody needs a model and everybody has a model whether they're able to articulate it or not and or a model or a theory and so i think that behavioral neuroscience has long been dominated by the basic emotion perspective and we see it when you do a classical conditioning experiment and you shock an animal and you say that that freezing behavior is related to fear or anxiety you're evoking this sort of classic view of emotion, that there's an event and it causes an emotion state and it reads out in behavior. Um, and so we have kind of turned that on its head uh, by adopting constructivist approaches, which are kind of, uh, have been around for a long time in the emotion literature. They're not new, but they are, have had a rebirth in emotion science um, in the last 20 some odd years. Um, and a constructivist approach like you alluded to, um, is very, I was going to say married to, that's not really the right wording, but um, it takes very seriously the symbolic component of emotions um, and the cognitive component. So the cognition affect or cognition emotion distinction is another topic we can riff on. Um, but a constructivist approach takes very, very seriously the idea that emotions are situated in cultures and contexts with words um, and that concepts are built through experience um, and that experience can be instructed experience. So, you know, when we have babies and we make faces at them and we reward them basically for making faces back at us, we are helping them construct concepts of what facial behaviors are and how they function. Um, and so we build this sort of constructivist model and then figure out what the components are that make a discrete emotion a discrete emotion and work backwards. And so in my group, we are dealing almost exclusively with affect, which we define as, and I should say like these are theoretical 
definitions and they are hypotheses to test. And this is just the structure by which we ask the questions. We might be wrong, we might be missing things. That's like part of the scientific adventure, I think. Um, so we work largely on affect and we define affect as a state. And I use the word state really intentionally because in humans, it could be conscious and felt like you can feel pleasant or unpleasant. But it, I actually don't think conscious reflective experience is required for an affective state, although it may be for an emotion state. And that's where the phylogenetic sort of gray area appears. Um, but, you know, affect we define as this ongoing state that has some degree of hedonics ranging from very negative to very positive, and it can have neutral states and then some degree of like physiological activation. Um, and so you can feel, you know, negative and really ramped up. And in humans, that sort of state underlies disgust and anger and fear. So different discrete emotions in that same affective space. You can also feel positive and ramped up, you know, excitement, elation. And so we focus really heavily on the valence dimension um, and increasingly on the arousal dimension. Um, but I think we don't even really know, there's, there's kind of a rebirth in the literature, but translational neuroscience has focused very, very, very heavily on negative states and negative high arousal states at that. Um, and so one of the things we're doing is just trying to, to understand how positive states are computed um, and the brain systems that underlie positive states. Um, so I think, you know, picking a model, being really clear about what your terms are and what you are and are not studying um, and how you're operationalizing definitions. And I think asking whether you're kind of being a realist or, you know, a positivist, like what do you count as evidence um, for a phenomena um, are really critical questions. And I don't think there are right, right and wrong answers necessarily, but I think part of the problem in translational neuroscience is people haven't defined their terms and provided sort of external validity for those things. So, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, so how dissociable are the uh, arousal, uh, is the degree of arousal from the, the degree of valence? Um, That's a great question. And overlaid with that is the extent to which arousal or activation reflects intensity. This is something that's been debated a lot in the human literature. So in people, they are fairly dissociable and they appear really consistently, those two dimensions. So we have a recent paper where we're actually trying to trying to get a kind of social dimension of affect to emerge because there are certain emotional experiences and also affective experiences that seem to occur more in social contexts than, than non-social contexts. Um, and so in people, we very consistently get the valence dimension and the arousal dimension in experience. The interesting thing is that they're differentially dissociable for different people. So this is work from my PhD mentor showing that the valence dimension is kind of always there and kind of always the same size. So there are people in the world who, but the arousal dimension varies. So there are people in the world who kind of group all positive things and all negative things, actually reversed in the Zoom video. Um, so, you know, they, they, they're clustering negative emotional experiences. For them, the difference between fear and anger is minuscule. 
or joy and elation. Um, and that arousal dimension is very, very small. And then there are people for whom the arousal dimension is very large and they're really differentiating based on sort of activation information. So there's a dis dissociability question is like, yes, yeah, statistically in people we can dissociate those things, although there's variance in the extent to which those dimensions are represented, both in how people define the words and then also how they use them. In animals, I don't think we know yet. And, um, I have data, it's from a paper in 2013, I'm not going to talk about it, but um, the, in, when you're trying to make good stimuli for animals, the dimensions end up confounded in really interesting ways. So um, aggression, watch, you know, monkeys watching aggression video, it's very negative, but it's also high in activity. And what we have in terms of positive is like grooming um, play in little kids, but adults don't play at the same sort of intensity. So in that original paper, we're, we have a main, main effects for valence and we control for the activation dimension, but the nature of our stimuli are such that, you know, there's not that many things that are negative from, well, there are things, but it, the sort of things that capture attention are social interactions that are negative, but not super high arousal. Um, we can cover that space, but we have a much harder time covering the arousal space in positive stimuli, which is a confound, of course. Um, so we've, we are working on disentangling that because I think until we have stimuli that cover all of effective space, it's really hard to try to dissociate behavioral responses in terms of valence and arousal. So how do the animal models come into it? Because it seems as though the social component, the language component, the cultural component that we have in humans, when you step down, the phylogenetic tree ends up getting somewhat reduced in dimensional space. And then in terms of the, the evolutionary part of this, is this just as simple as taking a set of dimensions in our neural architecture, this complex set of dimensions, and then looking at the set of, of the reduced set of dimensions in the monkey, and then mapping it onto the monkey architecture, and then trying to figure out functionally what the differences are and where some of those extra capacities may have landed. I mean, how do, how, what is the, what is the evolutionary take on this? Because I know evolution can be sort of implemented in different ways to look at problems in uh, a huge space like this. So. Yeah, so um, that's, it's a great question. I think that, so we don't even, tr well, you know when you're gonna say something and then you immediately think of the example that, yeah. I was gonna say, we don't even try to understand emotion in non-human animals. We focus almost exclusively on valence, but that's actually not true um, insofar as, you know, I have, I'll show some data about faces today. And I have a grad student who's working with agricultural animals. And there's a big emphasis in the agricultural field about trying to understand how animals are reading human behavior as a means by which to improve welfare outcomes. Like, okay, what are they picking up from us, right? What information are they encoding and how are they using it? Because historically in terms of agricultural management, they haven't been considered like that. And so there are some practices that are just kind of normative practices. Um, and the idea is that perhaps people could modulate their behavior to improve outcomes. And in those cases, those are studies where they're showing animals, and this happens across species, but it, the agricultural kind of domain is getting a lot of play as of late. And they show animals human emotion faces, and they ask whether they can distinguish them. And 
I, you know, from a human animal interaction perspective, that's a potentially interesting question. I think it's also a potentially interesting evolutionary question uh, because we work, you know, with non-domesticated species who share a lot of our facial architecture, the non-human primates, and then domesticated species that we have literally selected to be able to read us and be relatively affectively neutral. Um, so we are, we are doing some studies of like, can't, do they understand emotion categories, human emotion categories? Um, but with the exception of those studies of human animal interaction, we don't actually work on emotion very much. We do some work with people, um, but I just take that, I actually take that off the table entirely, um, which isn't to say it isn't very interesting. And I do think there are animal, you can start to make predictions based on neural architecture about what type of animal might have human-like emotions. But from an evolutionary perspective, my take is that, look, well, if you can survive with just affect, knowing something that is, is good for me versus bad for me, and also a behavioral distinction in those bad for me things, because sometimes you run from them and sometimes you run towards them, right? So there are fine-grained distinctions that are being made with affect. If you can survive just with affect, and that is what you need to meet to be reproductively successful, what is the added bonus that emotion gave humans? And my guess is, or my hypothesis is that it's something about living in extremely large social groups where we can't know each individual and we have to communicate. We, we need kind of transactional information about the significance of other people. And we need to be able to acquire that via verbal communication. That that's where kind of emotions become important. Um, and so, you know, in that framework, then you can start to think about what are the other species that have the ability to represent concepts that may have language, that have neural architecture for potentially for self-awareness, that also live in very large fission fusion groups, whom would benefit from having a sense of, you know, this person is going to cheat me out, or this person, this animal is going to cheat me out of something. And you come up with a species list that's like elephants, cetaceans, pinnipeds, um, which I think is potentially really exciting. Um, so they may have birds. emotions. Sorry, what? Birds. Birds. Yeah, birds is my new, like, ob obsession, um, because their brains are just so different. So it's like, it's very, yeah. But so basically, like, start with the hypothesis about what emotions are doing, and think about the neural architecture that you would need to support emotions per se, then go and see. But that said, if emotions are meeting evolutionary demands and allowing us to navigate the world, we would expect that they're actually constrained by the physiological world we have inside and the, so the interoceptive world and the exteroceptive world and, you know, dolphins and pinnipeds live in a totally different sensory world than we live in. So I wouldn't expect that their emotional lives in terms of the categories that they have would look like ours, um, even if they're there. And then, you know, from the translational neuroscience perspective, I think we, we operate on this like really, I was going to say basic or simple, but those words are used in specific ways in science. Um, but we operate on this level where we're asking um, kind of well-articulated uh, questions about valence, mostly. And I think, you know, in the primate brain, at least so far, it looks like the circuitry and the cell types are relatively highly conserved. Um, things have gotten wild in our world because we're actually doing some work in... Um, Aplesia californica. And so, 
you know, 20,000 neurons, you're in a totally different space, but the computation is really similar. So here are my current, you know, affect is a readout of, we think of this system that's saying, here are my current physiological resources. Here's exteroceptive information from the world. I need to do what's best for me. So I need to merge these things in a representation that can guide behavior. And fundamentally, animals are doing that, whether, whether they have brains or not. So we focus on how, what are the systems that represent internal physiology? What are the systems that are not just processing, but representing and integrating extraceptive channels? How do those things merge? And then how do those things guide behavior? It sounds like the whole above wax, that's the whole brain. Yeah. And it's not just so, that's the challenge, right? Is that, and this goes back to the sort of cognition emotion thing is like, people say, well, there's the cognitive brain, there's the emotional brain. And I, my take much, you know, my students get so annoyed every time I say this, it's like, everything is affective. Um, and, you know, in people, we can say, direct your attention over here. In monkeys, we can do experiments where we bring stimuli up quickly and we capture natural attention as an index of cognitive function. But, you know, we're currently training animals to do classic cognitive tests on a touchscreen, and we actually have to muck with their homeostasis in order to get them to do the task because they don't think touching a screen is relevant and it doesn't have any consequence for them. So we don't do water dep or food dep or, any, or switching food schedules or anything when we're testing because we want homeostasis, you know, things to be normal. But if you're trying to get a naive monkey to learn how to use a touch screen, you delay his morning meal till afternoon or you feed just once a day rather than twice a day and you reward every touch with something delicious. Um, and that's effective. Uh, so, yeah, we end up covering a whole lot of the brain. It sounds exactly opposite of what I tried to do with my eight-year-old in screens. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, I, you know, I thought we have these um, stereotypes about how a, in, individuals will interact with screens. And the monkeys certainly see screens a lot because we're in the rooms on iPads and computers. And they're kind of curious about them. But when, like, faced with one, they're just like, generally. I mean, some of them do great right away, but they tend to be the animals who are really, really food motivated and for whom the sugar pellet is like absolutely delicious. We have other animals who like leave half their chow and training them is a nightmare because it's just not relevant. So we have to make it affective, at least initially, until the behavior is overtrained. Um, so that's something we don't think a lot about when we, when we read like cognitive papers, but that's how animal work works generally. It, when you were describing about working with animals and so forth, it seems very, you know, it's very difficult, especially with social cues and so forth, because to get controlled stimuli um, and whether, you know, a cow is going to work, think a picture is a, is a human or something completely different or don't care about them. I mean, it's very hard because you're interacting, you know, kind of directly with their real ethology and so you have to see kind of what gets in and what what doesn't it seems like a, a huge confound yeah absolutely it's really hard um it's hard to make good stimuli i think you know our our solutions are kind of imperfect in general and you just we 
We aim for being able to model variants in the stimuli. So having enough trials and enough animals and enough stimuli that we can model the variation across trials. Um, and we're doing some work. I have a postdoc who's finishing up a paper right now trying to understand how monkeys use synthetic faces. So there's this phenomenon in humans called the uncanny valley where if you make a, a robot look super human-like, people get really weirded out by it and find it kind of off-putting. And there was a paper in PNAS a number of years ago showing monkeys do this too, but they used uh, computer-generated face stimuli that didn't look particularly realistic. And so we re-ran or we ran kind of a quasi-replication of that with really realistic face stimuli um, that are computer generated. And part of the motivation of that was that it would be really nice to be able to build a social interaction through computer generated images, through kind of, you know, cartoonish uh, technology and have some control over what animals are seeing and systematic control too, so that you can vary the signal in a sort of titrated way. Because the other problem is that, you know, we can, I think it's in the talk, but I have, you know, images of monkeys making facial displays, but I have to like evoke those in the animal and you have this like on off, but not super graded. Um, so yeah, the methodological component of this, I think is extremely important and there are ways to address it, but we don't have really perfect solutions for that yet. So I'd like to ask you something about, you know, neural architecture that supports it, that kind of statement, because in neuroscience, there's always been a kind of tension between bottom up and top down approaches and the ultimate top down approach is to say, this machine that does this job must have these components. Yeah. And, so, and there's no way to make a machine that does that job without it being organized kind of in this way. And so therefore that could guide our thinking about finding the components and analyzing them and understanding how they work. And, and my impression is, well, I guess you could say this about almost any approach to neuroscience, but my impression is that this hasn't really worked. And, uh, and uh, so I'm wondering, is it, how constrained can we make our description of the machine? Can we really say this machine has to have this set of components? Or could we say that there are like 10 different kinds of machines, one like this and one like this, and the brain could be any of these? Or, or can we even restrict it to 10? Can we even get close? Yeah. It's a Great question. I think you can make it even more complicated than that. So because you can have a model of a machine in which a, or a model of a system in which the system produces an outcome and you can understand the outcome by understanding the components of the system. And then you can also have a system from which the outcomes are emergent. Um, and I suspect, although you know, it is hypothetically testable that emotions and affect to some extent are the, emer they're emergent from these systems. Um, and so in those cases, even modeling the system, whether it's a top down or bottom up way is not going to actually give you a affective output, right? Because you have this emergent component of it. Um, and so the question is like, well, why bother? I mean, on one hand, the question could be like, well, why bother? On the other hand, it's like, well, there is this huge intractable problem and most of us as academics run towards those huge problems um, and how best to model it. And I, you know, 
I, I don't, I don't have a great answer for your, the specific question you asked, because I also, I think that we've long put emphasis on, you know, like the kind of classic neuroscience was like, what does the, and I'm, I'll talk about some of this today, like, what does the amygdala do? Like if we knock out the amygdala, whether it's a lesion or it's dreads or it's opto or it's pharmacokinetic, like whatever, what does the amygdala do? Here, we're going to tweak the amygdala and we're going to measure the outcome. And that's going to tell us something about the amygdala. And I can now say with confidence, because we have data on neuroplasticity following lesion, which I'll talk about today, that's not it. Because as soon as you turn off the amygdala, the brain starts to accommodate for it in interesting ways. Um, so that has led us very much towards a systems dynamics perspective and using essentially network models. Um, and we still do classic neuroscience. We still do lesion work and uh, you know, we've experimented with dreads and stuff. They don't work particularly well in monkeys. Um, and trying to understand, you know, how not just the function of areas, but what the process is, like how two areas are working together or cell types within, we're working a lot on the amygdala, so different nuclei. So looking at, you know, interconnectivity of the amygdala and how different cell types in these different nuclei seem to be contributing to a, comp a single computation um, in an emergent way. Um, so I guess that's all to say that I think that the, there's a question about which theory you're using, right? Relative to like emotion science. And then there's a question that you're asking, which is like, which model of the brain are you using? And I think that there's a change to go kind of move from top down to bottom up. But of course those models are imperfect too, right? Because they're constrained. Um, they need to be, they need to constrain themselves. And so the, I guess my hope in terms of neuroscience is that if we have lots of people working on these questions, who share a theoretical framework so we know we're talking about the same thing but they're working on the neuroscience questions from these different levels using different techniques that afford different readouts that maybe somehow we will get to some sort of ground truth about either particular brain loci or how networks are working um, and that, that that will help us to redefine the questions and figure out what model makes the best sense for the for understanding the brain? Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds like a really practical approach, and it's the kind of thing I guess neuroscientists in general have settled on is not just settling for top down or bottom up, but swapping back and forth between them and kind of iterating back and forth. But I was just wondering about the theoretical problem of of looking at it and then saying, well, I think emotion has these two dimensions. Um, you know, valence and an activation. And so, uh, and I can show that that it's those have got to be there, that there's a, no alternative to that somehow. I don't know if you can yeah, say that, yeah. but if you could. And then, uh, and then I can say, well then, and they're orthogonal, so I'll just go looking for the valence place in the brain and go looking for the activation place in the brain. And uh, does that pay off? I mean, I know, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, this has been, this is like the ongoing conversation in my lab, right? So, you know, when there was demonstration that there are cells in the amygdala that are processing positive information versus negative information, we went down this rabbit hole about, okay, like, what do we go, what are we looking, I mean, the question I think you're kind of asking is like, what are we looking for? Um, and, you know, we, there are, 
instances where areas of the brain that are pro primarily processing positive information or positive hedonics. Um, and so we can talk like in a really um, sketchy, cartoony way about that, recognizing that there's a lot of variants. Most areas of the brain do everything. But for example, if we were going to like sketch it out, you know, you might pick the accumbens, the nucleus accumbens, as an area that is processing positive information. But there are both excitatory and inhibitory connections going in and coming out of that. And so you can say, well, there's a lot of activity there. Cool. Like, What's it doing? Um, and, you know, if you get, you know, amygdala works like this too. If you get a lot of excitatory activity in an area that has inhibitory connections, like you're turning up, you're turning down, like there are all these systems for this sort of fine tuning of the system. Um, and so I think like, what are, you know, what am what are we doing and i i kind of started i think my postdoc i was very much in this model of like i want to understand the computations that particular areas of the brain are doing with regards to affect and where i've ended up is actually a, a slightly different place which is understanding how areas of the brain are working together in networks to allow animals to solve challenges um, and so we we do neuroimaging and and, and hopefully uh, also some like actual manipulations of the brain, but evaluate networks in the brain as they relate to networks in the social environment and try to kind of understand dynamics or as actually as you said uh, some of the processes rather than the outputs. Um, but you know, it's an imperfect. Somebody said, "Well, I thought you were going to have tell tell me where the locus of uh, depression was, negative mood, or whatever." It's like it, it seems so. So, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, uh, Mel. So I was just going to ask Eliza, um, and this is kind of based off a recent experience. Um, when we're talking about animals and response to human behavior, um, is there? kind of some confusion between these positive and negative valences. So I recently had my, my five-year-old son came sort of bouncing down the hallway towards the bedroom and was all excited and very happy, but obviously a very high you know, level of intensity here. And my two dogs immediately responded very aggressively. They got into a huge fight based on kind of this overexcitement. And so I'm sort of wondering how this, you know, comes into play, whether when you're talking about these, you know, these positive and negative valences, like, you know, how do they kind of merge together um, in these animal systems? Or, you know, is there confusion over, you know, which, uh, I guess, emotion in a way or which valence is being experienced? Yeah. So multiple components of that. So one is that I think that we as humans, but I also suspect other animals are doing this based on our data, confuse, um, high intensity with like arousal or high arousal with intensity and at the extremes i mean there's a lot of evidence of this in humans um at the extremes you know behaviors related to very intense experiences uh that are negative and positive are indistinguishable so the evidence from human is both perception and generation experiences with people experiencing acute pain like getting tattooed and pierced and then also during orgasm and you can't tell the difference right so perceivers cannot tell the difference uh between high arousal negative and high arousal positive states um, and i think animals have that non-human animals have that issue too um then there's a sort of 
other component to it, which is um, the, well, there's an evolutionary component to it, I think, which is like, why would this be the case? And because you might want something that's like extreme, you, sh you know, theoretically you would expect you want something that's extremely good, but not extremely bad and high arousal. And I actually think like the system is set up. I don't think homeostasis is the best model in most cases. And I kind of adopt an allostasis and a predictive model, but like the system is set up to operate best kind of around neutral. And so if you're going to make errors of detection, those high arousal states, you want to be able to detect those really, really quickly. And whether that's, you know, the, those high intensity, high arousal negative states are really bad for you in general. And so it's better to confuse the positive signal with the negative than to waste the computational time sorting out, like, is this bear going to eat me? <laughs> I think it's like less clear with domesticated animals because we've had a huge we've we've hugely influenced the sele their selection to be able to read our cues um but you know we find you know sh we're working with sheep and goats which are really interesting cuz neurobiologically they're very very similar they have totally different behavior and sheep navigate the world basically in terms of like life is okay or oh my god i'm going to die with not a lot of differentiation and valence like it's not it's unclear if they're not waiting long enough to do the the computation or, but you know, they, they're flighty. You know, when you talk to people who handle them and they describe them as really flighty and goats don't do that. Um, so they, they are our focus right now uh, behaviorally for disentangling one of that aspect, that sort of valence arousal aspect, um, because they seem, sheep seem to confound it really intensely in a way goats kind of don't. They were, we're in our last few minutes, and I just want to—I um, just want to ask you just about how deep, in terms of scale, you're interested in terms of your models. Because I noticed that you have a bunch of projects that have a, a huge genomics component, and um, mm -hmm. so how does that? Where? So we're, we talked about architectures, and to me, architectures are kind of confusing in the sense that evolution kind of is a is a set of kludges built on another set of like right the architecture is sort of there and then you have a change in the in 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 your environment and then you need to sort of build an, another little kludge or maybe a you know not even an architectural kludge it has to be something you know that that maybe is a process over time that changes things that allows the you know but it has to be possible as it's constrained by things that we don't understand um, where where does genetics come into that and how are you sort of implementing that in your understanding of at least affect if not i mean emotion is much more complicated yeah. obviously and you're, you said you're trying to avoid that in your experiments obviously but yeah just say something about that and then i think we have to wrap um, it up yeah so we have not tackled the genetic component of any of the or the actually i think there's the genetic component and of course the epigenetic component for affect might even be more important because you want to you want theoretically, you would want your affective system and your emotional system, but take that off the table, you want your affective system to be acutely tuned to your environment, right? Because it is system broadly, like it is conferring the ability to survive. Um, and so 
I think, you know, we think about it in terms of importance um, and, you know, there's been, we've kind of played around with looking a little bit at epigenetic features, but I, I, we haven't really gone there. Um, and I kind of considered it towards the tail end of my postdoc, but didn't just because I'm kind of be, was acutely aware that it's a huge field and it like requires proper training. So I think, you know, collaborating with people working on these questions is kind of the way to go for us. Um, but we are able to do, you know, we, we, drilled down to the level of uh, structure and function of single cells. Um, and we have done that traditionally using uh, just microscopy. Um, but, you know, increasingly, my sister is a expert in flow cytometry, and she's really a methodologist, and she's really pushing me and one of our projects to start flowing and microdissecting and flowing brains because she wants to see what's going on in terms of genetic orient like genetic processes in these different cells. So I think the, it, what the question you're asking me, this short answer is like, we don't, we think about genetics and we certainly think about uh, um, epigenetics and the contextual effects, but we have yet to model those um, or to, I think even carry out the experiments that would allow us to take seriously that question um, just for totally practical reasons that that is like it's just it's not my expertise um but i think that it's a really important thing especially as we head towards increasingly doing comparative work in very closely related species that have really really different behavioral or ecological niches um, because it can that sort of analysis can provide clues about how and when things shifted um, that we wouldn't be able to get out with the sort of level of analysis that we traditionally carry out in my group. Well, it seems like th those, the differential experiments between species at different levels of phylogeny could be really informative there because when you've got such a similar architecture and we've been committed our, you know, for, for generations at this point to showing how similar all the architectures are the flexibility you seem to get, right, is in the at the level of the epigenome yep. in, in, ter in, in terms of close species to us, like primates, or at least I would think that. I, again, I don't know, but, but, um, but yeah, I just noticed that you, you have some funding that's sort of in that direction. So you're one of the people who's sort of moving things in that direction, if even just the sort of building the ground level stuff along with Mel. You guys have a collaboration going, right? The, the, yeah, one we need to talk about later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think I, mean, I think the um, level of analysis question. You know, when I multiple levels of analyses in the same experiment using the same an agreed upon lexicon. I think like that is how we speed science forward, and I think you know, I'm rel relatively early in my career trajectory. And so the focus has been for me establishing, okay, what are the levels of analysis that we're going to tackle in my group and actually getting them all funded. So the other layer to this is that a component that um, we do lifespan health. So we start at fetal development and then we go all the way to the diseases of aging and elderly, um, healthy aging as well. Um, and one of the things that's come up now that like, I have I've secured grant funding and I have built a lab is like, okay, where, where are we going to collaborate in strategic ways to round out the levels of analysis? Because ultimately the goal is to paint a comprehensive picture and you, that can go in both directions. So you can go kind of 
don't want to make it high low, but you can go to the genetic end, but you can also go to the social systems end. And we kind of dabble in social network analyses and stuff, but like it can, it can get really complex really quickly. And I think all of those levels are really important ultimately to understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Super. Thank you for joining us, Eliza Bliss Moreau. Thanks guys. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>